This morning, we are continuing in our study of the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. It's a time in which we're calling this Anxious No More, the overall sermon series. And it's really about Paul's letter to the Philippians and how Paul is in prison and helps us deal with a lot of the negative stuff that we have in our own life. As I mentioned in our prayer, we become addicted to our own thinking. It's the ultimate human addiction, thinking and thinking and thinking and getting caught up in our own head. Now, if you've never done that, you can be dismissed, but for the rest of us, we will stay here and we will listen a little bit more to what the Apostle Paul says. I'm fond of telling high school students when they are afraid when they walk into a room to think somehow that others are thinking of them or saying something about them. I always remind them, people aren't thinking about you, they're thinking about themselves. But that's not just advice for high school students, that's advice for all of us. We tend to wonder, what are others thinking about me? They're not thinking about you. They're thinking about themselves because that's what we do. We go into our own head. And that's a lot of what Paul helps us deal with in chapter 2 of his letter to the Philippians. The Apostle Paul was writing about humility, which I thought about that. That may be the most arrogant thing he ever did. Think about that. How do you tell others to be humble? What was he doing? Sitting in prison, thinking something like this. Here I am in prison. Others are amazed at how I'm handling it. Now they just need to learn to be humble just like me. Well, you know, it's, that's the problem. You can't really address an issue like humility without realizing that as soon as we talk about it, we're, I guess we're not really being humble, are we? That's why somebody called me up on the phone one day and said, Pastor Stan, I have a question for you. I said, what's that? They said, when somebody says to me, in my humble opinion, aren't they being arrogant? Think about it. Yeah, they're giving you their opinion. That's the issue. See, that it's hard to find humility. It's hard to get to that point because when we try to talk about it or when we try to reflect on it, we start thinking, wow, I'm doing pretty well. Okay, now there went our humility. This last week, as I'm in my doctor ministry program at Asbury, one of my professors had an online session with us and he talked to us about what is called the homiletical plot. It also has the name of the Lowry Loop. It's a way of preaching a biblical narrative. And he seemed very excited about this. And I was not familiar with this particular way of, of preaching a biblical narrative. So he was explaining it to us. And he was telling us a book to read. And then he said, to make matters easier for you, I have posted onto our school website a sermon to help you understand how to preach a narrative this particular way. And so he told us where we could find that sermon. And then he said this. He said, I could have posted a sermon by Eugene Lowry. You see, it's a Lowry loop. He's a guy who came up with this particular way of preaching a narrative. He said, however, I posted my own sermon because it's better. Well, don't we want professors who are confident? Yes. But sometimes it's nice to have some who are a little bit humble. Hopefully he will not be listening. There's too many of us in the cohort, so hopefully he's not listening this morning. If he is, he probably knows who I'm talking about. But that is what we do, isn't it? 
we get confident, and our confidence moves us almost to an arrogance. And yet it's important to be confident. And so this morning, as we're looking at what Paul has to tell us, we're trying to examine how we deal with the negative stuff in our life, the, the depression, the, the feelings of anxiety, the feelings of, oh my goodness, my life doesn't feel like it's having meaning at this particular point. And what we discover is that in order to have change, we need to learn to be humble. We need to be able to get a little bit less of ourselves so we can get help from someone else. The very act of going in for counseling is an act of humility. It's an acknowledgement that I don't have all the answers and I need to get help from somewhere else. And that's why humility is so important in helping us deal with the issues in our life. And that's what Paul turns to, having helped us see the importance of other people in our life and, and the relationships that he's built. And he's starting to talk about the ways in which we make changes in our life. He comes to this whole section in which he wants us to learn from Jesus and to view life different and learn to get right-sized. Listen as I read from chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Paul says, Now, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but rather emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's helping us get right-sized. He's helping us see our relationship to others and particularly our relationship with Christ and how the mind of Jesus needs to start infiltrating our minds. Paul was really clear earlier in the letter in which he talks about how relationships are important to him, and he helped to see how his relationship with Timothy was so helpful. And if you read through the works of Paul and you look at the book of Acts and the ways in which he lived his life, you discover that he has these other people who were important to him. Here, this first great missionary of the church, the first theologian that we have, the person who writes more of the New Testament than anyone else, is very clear about how the relationships with him have helped him. Relationships like Barnabas or Silas. Relationships like Priscilla and Aquila, the people who discipled him when he first became a Christian. And of course, in the book of Philippians, how the church of Philippi and all the other churches that he writes to, he's always clear to them how they've been a help to him. Not just that he's been there to help them, but how they've been of help to him. That's why we need each other. We need to have our connections with each other. We get this in verse 2 as he talks about making my joy complete, pointing out the fact that these Christians in the church of Philippi 
have a lot to do with how he feels about his life because of his relationships with them. We sort of saw the same thing when we started coming together again with the pandemic. We weren't around each other and all of a sudden we got to show up even though we were all wearing masks. It encouraged all of us to be able to see one another. You see, the first thing that we discover if we're going to be humble in our life and learn to live the way that Christ wants us to live and what Paul talks about here is we need to learn to acknowledge our need for others. We do not live our life as isolated individuals, and there's nothing worse for us than isolating. Just like Paul, needing his relationship with people like Barnabas early in his ministry when everybody was afraid of him because here comes this guy who's this person who's persecuted the church and people don't trust him. It takes Barnabas, a friend, to introduce him to the disciples, to say, no, we can learn to trust this person who becomes the first mentor that Paul has. And all through his ministry, you start seeing how Paul is dependent on others and listens to others. Even when he talks about his Judaism, he goes back and tells how Gamaliel, his teacher, was so important to him. Get the point? Isolation is a bad thing. When we go to those negative places in our life, we tend to isolate. Let me say that again. When we go to those negative places in our life, we tend to isolate, amen? That's what we do. We isolate, we push other people out. We go more to our thinking, and then we wonder why we have a problem. And so what Paul is helping us see here is the importance that other people are. Verses 1 and 2. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. You see, if I'm great and glorious, I have nowhere to go and nowhere to turn to. When I become great and glorious and think it's all about me and how I live my life and how others can benefit from me, I lose the ability to learn and have the compassion and the encouragement I need from others. Paul made it clear that his close friends in the Philippian church helped to keep him positive during this time. He's sitting in prison and we're saying, how in the world did he get through it? Well, he tells us exactly how we get through it. He had Timothy who was there with him, who encouraged him. He had people who were sending him letters. He had churches that were praying for him. And he acknowledged, even at a time when he was being forced into isolation, in which he didn't have a cell phone that he could pick up and text somebody, or he didn't have a way to email or make a phone call to someone, he still found a way to be connected with others. And that's what we need to learn in our life. He lets us see what is needed, encouragement and comfort, and participation. Those are all things we do with one another. Negativity is our depression, our anxiety, and it comes in all kinds of forms. And as soon as they start happening in our life, we isolate. We push people away. We go to dark places in our own minds and in our own thinking. It's the number one thing that keeps people in bad situations is that what I talked about earlier, that addiction to our own thinking at going to that squirrel cage or that, that gerbil cage where we just go around that hamster wheel and keep spinning on the same thing. Humility is learning that we aren't better than someone else or we're not important than others, but we are part of, that we need each other, that the relationships that we build are vital in our lives. When I was a kid, I was very fortunate because my mom and dad were at every single event that I was involved with 
almost when I was young to a fault, to the meaning, to the point of where I used to wonder why are my parents at everything when everybody else's parents aren't. And part of that was also because of my dad's job. He was a pastor, so he was able to work out his schedule so he could come to everything. I remember being in middle school and playing basketball games where I was a reserve and barely was going to play very many minutes. Maybe if the team was going to win, I'd get in for the last few minutes, and my mom and dad were always in the stands and were always watching. They always had words of encouragement. They never would say anything negative about how I played or anything. They would always tell me how much they enjoyed being there. When I got to high school, it became apparent to me at one point, I thought about it, every single event that I ever had done, my mom and dad were there. And I got to my senior year in high school, and it was the last thing that I was going to do before I graduated, that we had our spring play and a friend of mine and I had written the, the senior play. We got to do our own original play, and so the school play was done, and then we had this small thing that we were doing at the end that we as seniors had written. And my dad told me earlier in the day as we were sitting for breakfast that he was going to be gone, and he didn't know if he was going to make it back in time to see. I didn't think much about it until the evening started, and I remember standing at the curtain looking out to see, and I saw my mom, and there was an empty seat beside her, and my dad wasn't there. And I remember looking out again, and my dad wasn't there. And by the time it got to the point of where our play started and the curtain opened, I looked out, and there was my dad. And it made me realize how important it was to me, the relationship I had with my parents, that they were just always there as a source of encouragement. You see, folks, we need others. It's not that they need us, yes they do, but we need other people and we need to acknowledge that. And when we can acknowledge that, when we can acknowledge the fact that we need to build those relationships, we get out of our own thinking, we ask for help, we get help from other people, and we start discovering what Paul tells us, that there is encouragement in Christ. There is encouragement as we relate to each other. There is comfort from this love. There is a co-participation in the Holy Spirit as we pray together with others and we get connected with other people. That's why we do so many small groups in our church. I've been thinking about it. I think we right now have 15 small groups going in our church. Some of them in person. We're about to start. I guess the 15th one is about to start, which is going to be a women's group on a Monday morning. And each of these are places where people can connect with each other and can talk to each other and then can connect other times and pray for each other. A lot of times people will share some of their most vulnerable things when they get to know someone else in a prayer group or in a Bible study or in a women's or a men's study or a broship. These are all ways in which we connect with each other to do what the Bible teaches us so we live our Christian life the way that it's laid out for us. But then, once we acknowledge our need for others, we also need to become aware of our own motives. Because we can tend to be a very self-centered people. Let me say that again. We can be a very self-centered people. Amen. We want our own things. We want what we want. We want things for ourselves. We think about ourselves. I think about Winnie the Pooh and the honey tree. I love the, the, the little cartoon. I saw it as a child, and we watch it with our kids. Winnie the Pooh gets stuck in the honey tree. And the narrator says, Winnie the Pooh thought, and he thought. And what did he think of? Winnie the Pooh. So we think about We think about ourselves. What's in it for me? How can I do something for myself? We need to be aware of our motives. Verses 3 and 4, Paul corrects it when he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider the others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
What Paul is telling here is something to avoid and something to choose. He's saying if you want to live the Christian life, if you want to grow the way that God wants us to grow, if you want to have the Holy Spirit working in your life and changing you, you and I need to do the work so that we give room for that Holy Spirit to work in our lives. And he's giving us a very clear directive on how to do it. He says, avoid selfish ambition. The word here is aletheia. It is a Greek word that is first found in the writings of Aristotle. And it's interesting, it's a political term that means to manipulate other people. Now, I don't know about you, but I noticed a politician or two in our society likes to manipulate other people. Have you ever noticed that? So think about that. We're asked not to act like politicians. We're asked not to manipulate other people's opinions or manipulate the way other people act. Why? Because it only ends up hurting ourselves. If you become a manipulative person and, and try to always get something from somewhere else, and someone else, it only hurts you and only hurts me when we do that. And Paul is teaching us to live a different way. And then he says, not only be careful of manipulating or this selfish ambition, the second word he uses is conceit. It's interesting. It's a compound word that means empty promises. Don't make empty promises to someone else. As much as at the moment when we say something and we promise something that we're not going to follow through, we may excuse it and we may not think much about it, it ends up hurting us. If people can't count on us, then we start not feeling good about ourselves and it gets us back into that isolation and starts making us not being the people of integrity that God called us to be. So Paul says, be careful, avoid certain things. If you want to look at your own motivations, make sure you're not being a politician trying to manipulate people's opinions and be careful not to just give empty promises to someone else and think that you can get through life living that way. But rather, he says, choose something different. Choose valuing other people. Don't look out for your own interests, he says. Look at the interests of others. For when we manipulate or fool others... It destroys us and destroys who we are and who God created us to be. It keeps the Holy Spirit from changing us and making us into being the people of integrity that God wants us to be. Instead, Paul says, help someone. It's really simple, isn't it? Help someone. How hard is that? Go help someone. Think of someone else and try to find somebody else. Call somebody on the phone and say, how are you doing today? Call somebody else and say, hey, can I do something to help you? When you're around someone else, say, is there, and rather than waiting for somebody else to make a comment, ask, how can I help? What can I do? Is there anything you need today? He's, ask, he's making the Christian life pretty basic and simple here. It's interesting, Wells Fargo, of all places, of course, it's a banking institution, did a study about 10 years ago, and I think they did it probably based on the fact that they were trying to get the people in their company to do more volunteering, but they did a study of the effects of being a volunteer. Not how, if you volunteer, how it helps this community or the society, but what does it do for you? And they studied over 2,000 people, and they discovered some things. The first thing they discovered is over a five-year period when they took this survey, they discovered that people were happy. In fact, they called themselves very happy if they volunteered about six hours a month or more. That's not that much, but if you spend six hours a month doing things for other people, you're going to feel better about yourself and you're going to be happy, according to the survey. 
But then they discovered, along with being happy, some other really interesting things that come out of thinking of other people, just like Paul's talking about here in this text. People live longer if they volunteer. People have a longer life if they volunteer. See, getting out of our own heads and getting away from ourselves and getting away from our selfishness and thinking about ourselves and thinking about others is actually healthy for us. They also discovered, and I love this one, it reduces chronic pain. You know I've had parishioners who tell me that. They'll say they've got all kinds of hurts and pains in their life, physical pains, but when they volunteer and they do something for other people, it goes away. You see, when we're thinking of others, we're not thinking of ourselves. When we're thinking of others, we can get through things that we can't get through other times. And then another thing they discovered, there's a lot of other, other positives out of it. They also discovered that people who volunteer, it reduces their blood pressure. It makes their blood pressure go down. It's what Paul's telling us. We need to quit thinking about ourselves and think about others. We need to make the Christian life a very simple, basic thing, saying, how can I serve my neighbor? How can I serve the people in my family? How can I serve others? How can I think more of others and less about myself? And in so doing, God starts changing us, and God starts healing our bodies, and God starts healing our spirits. The change comes from the Holy Spirit, but we still need to do legwork. That's why Paul tells us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do the right things. Learn to live the right way and then leave the results up to God. So as we talk about anxiety or depression or any of the bad things that can happen in our life, Paul starts giving us wonderful advice as he's sitting here in prison, learning to live life on life's terms. And he says it's acknowledging our needs for others and then becoming aware of our motives. But then finally he tells us, and I think this is actually the most important and the hardest one, we need to change our thinking and start learning from Jesus. We need to change our thinking. There's something wrong with our thinking. It's all through the Bible. You know, in Romans 12, we're told the same thing. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It's about having our thoughts changed. That's why Scripture is so important. We read the Scripture, and we start reading how God wants us to live our lives and God's perspective on our lives. When we're living according to self-centered and selfish motives, our life is not going to be the best that our life can be. But when we start living the way Christ wants us to live, we start having the mind of Christ. It's a choice every single day, every situation we can face. Drive down the road, and somebody cuts us off. Our thinking goes one place. Where does Christ's thinking go? What happens if I think to myself, how would Jesus respond in this situation? Or we go to the supermarket. Oh, that horrible experience where we're standing in line with our 11 items. Why, we know we have 11 items because we've counted in our cart five times and we make sure we only have 11 items. But the two people in front of us have 14 and 16 items because we've counted their cart also. But the sign clearly says, no more than 12 items. We get ourselves a little upset, do we not? And what Paul says is, how different is it if we change our thinking and learn from Jesus? Because here's what Jesus did. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who didn't worry about what the person in market basket was doing. No, that's not in the text. <laughs> who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself 
Taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you hear that? Jesus lived a different way. God becoming one of us. It's a mystery of the Christian faith. We can believe that. We can believe everything else in Scripture because once we get that concept that God came into this world to become one of us, literally emptied himself to become a human being, there's nothing else. There's nothing else to understand. It all stems from that, God emptying himself. Paul uses a unique word here. I say unique because it's the only time it appears in the New Testament. It's the word kenosis. It literally means to empty, to pour out. Most people think that it comes from Isaiah 53, that passage of the suffering servant, where Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah who's coming, and he says he had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and he was scourged for our sins. The idea was Jesus emptied himself, becoming a servant to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's Christ's mindset. God loving you so much that he becomes one of us and suffers everything for your behalf. It's not that I do something to earn my way to God. I could never do it. I could never do enough to impress God, no matter how good I am. That, that's our own thinking, to think, well, if I compare myself to someone else, I'm doing pretty well. I'll keep a scorecard here. But the scripture teaches us the opposite. It's not about us doing something great to impress God, but it's Jesus who empties himself who becomes a bondservant, who becomes a human being, who dies a death on the cross in order that we might be healed, that our sins might be forgiven. But beyond that, it also is a mindset. It's a different way of living. It's saying Jesus views life different than we view. Who does that, thinks of others that much? But that's how Christ viewed this world. And now what Paul does is he commands us. He doesn't suggest that we have that mindset. He literally commands us. It's an imperative. When he says, have this mindset, he's saying, I'm telling you what to do. He's commanding us. You know, it's sort of, sort of like I take my dog outside and the dog goes running and she's going to run in the street. And I say, Michelle, sit. That's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's a command. Or somebody comes to the house and she gets all excited and I'll say, Michelle, down. It's a command. It's expected that she will follow the command. Paul's saying, follow this command. It's a clear command. Have Christ's mind. Ask yourself in situations, rather than getting frustrated and getting upset and getting depressed and getting filled with anxiety and frustrated how everybody else is living and taking everybody else's inventory, have Christ's mindset. Ask the simple question, how would Jesus respond in this situation? The great 19th century evangelist was D.L. Moody. He started his career actually not as an evangelist, but as a shoe repairman up in Boston. And it was a Sunday school teacher who came to him one day and said, Moody, you're a talented young man, but you need to give your life to Jesus. There's a plaque on the building up in Boston where you can see where this guy goes in and he shares a gospel with D.L. Moody. He gets down on his knees and he accepts Christ. 
After that, because he works in this, we're this company, this shoe company, he gets promoted and he gets transferred to Chicago. And he's in Chicago, and he's now given his life to Christ, and he's going to church on a Sunday morning. And he realizes there's not a lot of people who go to his church, but there's all these kids who are playing out on the sidewalk. So he goes to them, and he goes, you know what? I'm going to a place where they're telling amazing stories. Like, they're going to tell us this story about this guy who was so fat that they took a sword and they stuck it into him and they lost the sword in him. And the kids go, wow, that's a cool story. And he goes, not only that, they're going to tell other stories. They're going to tell us stories about this guy who's this big, powerful guy, and he has long hair. And a woman comes along and cuts his hair off, and he doesn't have any power after that. The kids go, wow, I'd like to hear those stories. He goes, come along with me. Of course, he takes them to Sunday school. And all of a sudden, people start realizing that D.L. Moody has an ability to be an evangelist, and he becomes an evangelist. And eventually, he's preaching. He goes to Europe. He gets to know his good friend Charles Spurgeon. He comes back to the States, and he is packing them in. Tens of thousands of people are going to hear D.L. Moody. And one day, some people from Europe come, and they travel because they want to hear the great Moody preach, and they're staying with him. And they had a tradition in Europe that wasn't in the United States, that at night you'd take your shoes off and you'd put it outside your door, expecting that the servants would come and they would shine your shoes. But D.L. Moody and his wife didn't believe in having servants. And D.L. Moody saw the shoes sitting there, and he said, hmm, I guess these people need their shoes shined, so he just took everybody's shoes and he shined them. And people who got to know D.L. Moody said he was a very humble man. He thought of others. How can I serve others? Here's a guy who's a preacher who's preaching to tens of thousands of people, but he doesn't see it beneath him to shine people's shoes. Jesus says you want to learn, Paul says, you want to learn to live the Christian life. Learn to acknowledge we need other people. Beware of your motives and change your thinking to learn from Jesus because it's a different way to live our lives. And the amazing thing is, it works. Which is why the Apostle Paul can write from prison, and he can write a letter to encourage others. You'd think that everybody needs to be encouraging Paul, but he's sitting in prison and saying, how can I write a letter to encourage you? And folks, that's what we're trying for the next couple months. We live in a society and in a time when people's anxiety and fears and frustrations are at an all-time high. There is an answer. And the answer comes from our Savior and from God's Word. That as we learn these ways in which the Scripture teaches us how to live, and we pray and we trust the Holy Spirit to change us, our hearts get changed from the inside out. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, open us up to the truth of your Word. Help us to go beyond ourselves and to think of who you want us to be and who you are creating in us. Help us to think less of ourselves and more of you and more of others. Help that mindset that was so prevalent in Christ start being our mindset that we could start facing situations the way that Christ would. Not that we'll get it right, but we can always ask that simple question, how would Jesus respond in this situation? We pray your blessing on our congregation, whether we be here or whether we be watching at home or wherever we are or watching later this week. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word and to be transformed by it. And now may we not have to think that we need to change ourselves. Rather, put ourselves in the place where we're open to your spirit to let you create in us and change us into the people you want us to be. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.